Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking the latest research on the student academic experience, postgrads, the reorganising of Whitehall Science, and a report on white working class students. It's all coming up. My worry, if you like, is that the pandemic has delayed adulthood either further, and that means the response from universities needs to be even greater than currently planned, because we're going to have students who um, are coming into universities or just moving into second years um, who are... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and here to help us survey the world of HE policy this week are three brilliant guests. In Cambridge, we have Jonathan Grant, Professor of Public Policy at King's and Director of Different Angles. Jonathan, your highlight of the week, please. I participated in a UKRI roundtable on the future of um, research impact assessment, which I found incredibly stimulating because we're sort of getting beyond the old um, tropes and sort of getting to some quite interesting spaces. And in uh, York, we've got Marion Hilditch, Deputy Academic Registrar at the University of Bradford and Chair of SWOC. Marion, your highlight of the week. Uh, I'd very much like to say uh, it's the end of Pride Month, but actually it has been quite an abysmally bad Pride Month. So instead of, I'm going to say, it was seeing Brenda Romero speak yesterday about uh, women's leadership, which was a very inspiring and also infuriating talk. And in somewhere in the southwest, no one knows quite where. It's David Kernahan, uh That's DK to you and me. Uh, DK, your highlight of the week? Um, a couple, really. I got a chance to speak to um, a bunch of learning technologists at Alt and a bunch of quality assurance professionals with the QAA and I would struggle to think of any two groups of people that have done more to make the last year work. So it was great to catch up with them. So let's start the week with the latest uh, research out from HEPI and Advanced HE, the, the annual Student Academic Experience Survey. Marion, talk us through it. So yes, uh, the freshly released Student Academic Experience Survey for 2021 by Happy Advanced HE uh, surveyed about 10,000 full-time undergraduate students between February and March 2021. Um, Non-surprisingly, perhaps the results are uh, not very positive compared to last year. Students have not had the experience they were expecting. Um, And I say not very surprising, but it doesn't mean that it's good news in any way or that we should just take it for granted that this is all down to COVID and move on. So uh, some of the key findings of the report is uh, contact hours have declined compared to uh, the previous year. Again, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, although also students have found that their, uh, their actual assessments have risen. Um, and uh, many students find that uh, they would repeat this year as they have done, but then we've also got about one in 10 that say that they would have def- uh, deferred. Um, about one in three considered leaving their course, uh, but uh, the shocking finding out of this is that that actually rises up to 43% for disabled students. And even more shockingly, perhaps again, not surprisingly, is that this has risen up to 64% for trans students. Um, 
And uh, again, this is uh, up from the previous year um, by about 13%. Uh, and uh, we've also got at the same time the release of the Accenture and Sybil report on the uh, student uh, mental health uh, higher education, which was conducted uh, in late 2020. And again, um, not surprisingly, we are told that students have not been having a good time of it this year. Um, a lot of them have reported not having a single friend at university. And um, uh, a lot of them uh, have reported mental health issues uh, either uh, that have come about this year or uh, long-term mental health issues uh, issues that have been exacerbated. And again, this report picks out LGBTQ students and the disproportionate impact this is having on them. So it's pretty pretty mixed and some some troubling reading. DK, can can you help us? Can you help us find some of the good news in the in the research? Um, well, I mean, every year we get this survey and every year we hope to learn something from the survey to take on to future years. I mean, this is the point of surveying students about the experiences to keep getting better. Unfortunately, a big chunk of what we've learned this year is that it's not a good idea to study at higher education level during a pandemic. Um, in terms of good news, um, students are less anxious than I expected. They're still pretty anxious, but they're as anxious as they were in 2014. I did mention this to Jim Dickinson, and he says that was a difficult time. Um, the, pro- the proportion that would leave HE entirely that are just so hacked off with the, the experience that they've just got no interest in HE study, um, it's the same as in 2018. What we've seen in 2021 is a rise in the number of students that are thinking that they wish they had deferred the start of their course, um, which, although it's not great for those students and their experience, it does get through the message that fundamentally underneath all of this, higher education is still attractive and it's still something students want to do. But on the face of it, it's been a horrible year. It's been a year that students should not have been um, subjected to, should not have had to deal with. And it does... I know it's the UCU uh, talking point, but I think in this case, it's the right one. It does point the finger at government. Uh, these students should never have gone back to campus and there should have been some other measures in place. It's interesting because the, the, the value for money scores is what's getting the headlines in the, in the, in the press because those have done really, really poorly this year compared to previous years. Jonathan, I mean, is that, does that speak to, um, what we'd actually call value for money, or or is that about what happened before the term the term in the year started? Is that about the ex- that expectation management um, of what you know the kind of gap between what people expected to get and and what they got? Yeah, so well, I think you could um, say yes to both of those points, and that's half the challenge with this data. Um, it did occur to me that you know, and this isn't about being trite, but um, I've had no value for money for my car insurance over the last year. Um, so there is a degree that this is inevitable, um, given the situation that we as a sector found ourselves in. And, and I absolutely support DK's comment about um, sort of lack of clarity from government at the beginning of the year. Um, I had a quick look at the data and I couldn't see a breakdown by first year, second year, third year. Um, it may well be there. But I do think we've also got to remember that those first year students went through the A-level fiasco as well. Um, and, and that must, um, be having some kind of impact. Um, uh, the- just to break in there, yeah. um, yeah, please. uh, it, uh- there is actually a breakdown that I know Nick Hillman would be delighted that I'm uh, picking up on this and making sure that we hear it. The interesting thing, I tend to look at the overall 
is the experience what you expected uh, uh, question. That just seems like a more reliable question for me. Uh, the ones who have really struggled are the ones in their final year, in their third or their fourth or above year. I think in talking about University of the Press, we do tend to think about freshers in halls and just starting their careers and uh, freshers week and all that stuff. But in terms of the reality of doing your exams, uh, doing your assessed work, especially in practical subjects, and trying somehow to look for a graduate job in a very uncertain economy, I think those have really been the students that have struggled, and that does come through in the data. Yeah, well, that, well, that's really interesting, isn't it, DK? Because, um, you know, so I, I guess my headline sort of response to that is that we should not be surprised um, that students felt they were not getting value for money um, because I think you could argue that right across all other sectors. Um, but I don't think that is an excuse for either government or um, the sector in the way that we have reacted. And we do need to learn those lessons. And I think the real take-home message for me is on, on the mental health issues um, that came up in the second survey. Yeah, absolutely. That was not a great survey for the sector. Um, there has been a rash of reports over in previous years about the phenomenon of student loneliness. Um, of course, our um, very own Jim Dickinson kicked off a first report at the original Secret Life of Students event. I'd look forward to um, future news about Secret Life in Student events to come soon from Wonky. Um, so they found uh, 55% of students reported they felt lonely every day or every week, which on the face of it is scary, um, is slightly worse than the previous time they ran it in 2019. The question was, how often have you felt lonely in the last 12 months? And the options were daily, weekly, monthly, once, twice, on never. So it's kind of an impressionistic thing. Um, and as we know, unfortunately, with mental health experiences, one of uh, the symptoms, the things that you get if you suffer from depression, as many, many people have in the sector and continue to do so, is there is a tendency to report um, things as being worse than they actually are because they feel worse to you and they look and you experience them worse. So there is an issue there that if students are having a horrible time anyway, then they could report things worse. The difference between this and 2019 is not much. Um, it's 11 percentage points. Uh, students are more lonely this year, but that's not as much as you might expect if it was wholly to do with the pandemic. There is a fundamental issue with students and mental health, which is stuff, um, something that we've covered on the site recently as well. And again, this um, the pandemic is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for the sector here. We have serious work to do. So, Marion, what, what's to be done for September? Uh, yeah, quite rightly, I think we need to look forward. Uh, so hopefully a lot of institutions, I know certainly at Bradford, we have spent a lot of time thinking how we're going to support students who are coming back from this experience and uh, have spent a lot of time thinking about the additional academic support that we can provide them and also mental health support and financial support, actually. Um, and I should hope that this is something that the sector all over has been looking at because we, we need to acknowledge that the experience that students have had has been different. We've all worked very hard to do our best but it has been in most cases just that doing our best um and I also wanted to go back a little bit to what we're talking about final year students and point out that um, these students are not going to get to experience a graduation. And actually, the students before them didn't either. Uh, so most universities have switched online ceremonies. So I hope that we all get to do something for those students so they can actually 
uh, have the big celebration that they rightly deserve when we are in a position to do that. So it's not just about the students that are still with us. It's also about the students that have already completed with us and so not forget about them. Uh, but I think mental health support is key. Uh, academic support is key. Uh, but also I think it's uh, lessons learned. Um, one of the findings is that uh, some of the comments have been around the fact that students have found actually deadlines uh, have too many clashes in their assessments now. Um, and that's uh, definitely a lesson learned for us because by pivoting from exams to online assessment, uh, we may not have gotten very right in coordinating those deadlines and we can definitely work on that and do better. Um, so there's a lot that we can do to learn from the experience. And personally, actually, these findings are hard to read, but they could have been much worse. Uh, so obviously we have done something right. Um, and, uh, I think, again, should not forget that this is not the same experience for all the students, uh, that we're talking about. So some of these students have spent the majority of the year at home. Some of them have spent a lot of the year trapped in halls of residence. Uh, some of them have spent it on the NHS front lines, um, and what are we going to do to support those students as well? Uh, there's uh, students who should have been on placements uh, in healthcare that have not been able to have those placements at all. It's not a straightforward issue. Uh, there's a lot of work to do. And uh, I think the key thing is to acknowledge what's happened uh, and work together uh, to do better. Jonathan, that acknowledgement is pretty important though, isn't it? Because the line that comes from some places, which is, you know, it's essentially, well, of course, you know, things weren't great. It's, it was a pandemic. It doesn't, you know, it's, 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 it, it's it, it, it's going to be hard to rebuild from that because you've got to listen to what students are are telling you and you know the, at the same time lots of promises were made about how things were going to be okay and equivalent and everything else with the best of intentions but at the same time kind of the experience is, is the experience and just a supplementary supplementary kind of question the political bind that the government could push the sector into this year it's it's, it's really awkward timing but it looks very likely the government's going to also do something to the graduate repayment threshold and, and, and make it, you know, make, make this cohort of students pay more for longer potentially. And that's going to protect, that's going to, that's going to give universities a, an even, even harder time in the next couple of years, isn't it? Because students don't care what the kind of government policy is or, or how it's helping or not helping, um, uh, their experience at university. It's, it's the kind of, you know, it's the provider. It's the, it's the it's the 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 contact it's the you know it's everything that happens within that experience from from kind of the opening the prospectus to to graduating it feels to me that the government are going to really squeeze universities in the next couple of years yeah i i i wholly agree with that mark and i think it's going to be a very um um challenging to horrendous word um time for everybody um and you know to a degree that's why i think universities have to as a sector step up and own the issue and um, one of the places just going back to marion's comments on, around mental health i think um i absolutely agree with marion we've got to think about the sort of diversity of experience um when we talk about um student experience and mental health because um it is very varied for very different reasons um but i also think it's really important that we acknowledge that this um increase in mental health um, or mental ill health, as we probably should call it, um, predated the pandemic. Um, and there's lots of both um, sort of clinical research on that, um, but also socio-demographic research um, trying to provide explanations of the increase in um, mental in health around young people. Um, and that um, one of the in my mind, one of the best explanations for that is this increase in so-called delayed adulthood. Um, and my worry, if you like, is that the pandemic has delayed adulthood either further, and that means the response from universities needs to be even greater than currently planned, because we're going to have students who um, 
are coming into universities or have just moving into second years um, who are in, in a sort of psychological sense younger than they were a generation ago. Um, but the constructs by which we support those students haven't radically changed in that period. Um, so I really think there's an opportunity for quite radical change in thinking about how we support students from a mental well-being as, as well as mental ill health perspective. As kind of a counterpoint almost, there is clearly um, um, a mental health issue around young people more generally, and in particular, we see it among students. And it uh, surprises and kind of morbidly fascinates me that this is happening at the same time as the arm of the free speech debate that says education needs to be uh, challenging, it needs to put students in uncomfortable places. Well, we've had a little test of this this year, we've put students in uncomfortable places, and surprise, surprise, it is not good for them. So, I mean, maybe the people that are making those kind of arguments about free speech need to possibly rethink their positions a little yeah no, i wholly agree um, you know all this sort of um language of coddling snowflakes um is both disrespectful um but it, it the data doesn't really back it up um and you know i i think as as a sector as as um you know, um, as governments, if you like, we've got to acknowledge that these Gen Z students have a very different set of values. And it's not just Gen Z students, it's Gen Z non-students as well. Um, and, you know, the explanations for that can be debated. Um, but the fact is that we have seen an increase in, in mental ill health. Um, and when you look at the data, that can't be explained by diagnostic biases and things like that. Um, and one of the explanations is this um, concept of delayed adulthood, which I think lands firmly in the remit of um, universities and how they um, support um, students as they um, go through their um, undergraduate education. Um, and I don't think we've adapted our structures um, within universities to deal with that. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, this is uh, Andy Fippin. Uh, I'm a professor of digital rights at Bournemouth University and um Today's article, The Kid in Wonky, um, which I co-authored with Professor Emma Bond and Professor Graham Tal, um, looks at what the university response to the recent Ofsted report about sexual harassment in schools um, should should be about. So, so while Ofsted obviously um, is focused on schools, I think what there's, there's fundamental messages that come out of it that, that relate very strongly to the Office of Student Statement of Expectations around sexual harassment and misconduct in university environments. And, and we think the the most fundamental message that we can take from the Ofsted report is is the um, statement that institutions should. Um, acknowledge that this does go on rather than worrying about whether or not it does. Um, we think institutions should take a position that they will assume sexual harassment, misconduct and assault is happening on campus and provide um, measures to support students who might be victims of those sorts of things because we know the main reason victims don't disclose is because they don't believe, they don't think they're going to be believed and they don't think anything will happen if they do disclose so the fundamental thing we think universities should be looking at is providing clear routes for disclosure um, and support by trained staff via those routes for disclosure and also obviously to very clearly signpost those routes for disclosure to all students okay the sudden trust has a new report out on postgrads dk talk us through the highlights please okay so this is called 
inequality in the highest degree, which I imagine something that um, somebody at the Sutton Trust is very proud of. Um, essentially, it situates access to postgraduate study to master's level study as a new front or um, an increasingly important front in the battle to widen access and ensure that anyone that can um, benefit from um, university education gets to do so. Uh, so back in 2013, 2014, 6% of what we call um, working class students um, did a master's um, going on from their degree, um, 8.6 from managerial and professional backgrounds. If we scroll forward to 2017, 18, uh, that's 12.9% of working class students and 14.2% of uh, managerial and professional background students. So this we link obviously to the success of fee loans, but unlike fee loans in the undergraduate space, uh, the, the amount of the loan is not tied to the amount that's charged in fees. So we've seen a lot of inflation um, regarding uh, postgraduate fees. So in 2011, if you wanted to do a master's in the Russell Group, you're looking at paying about £4,400. In 2020, you're looking at a 98% increase in fees, 8,700 or thereabouts, which is a big expansion. It's above inflation. And the concern is even though we have this support available, if we hike the prices up even further, then we're just getting the same uh, problems as we had previously, apart from we're spending twice as much government money, which is probably a bad thing. It's a good report. I recommend you take a look at it. And we've got a piece on the site as well. It's, I mean, nothing there that's going to particularly surprise anybody. I mean, it's very expensive. There are lots of, there are lots of, lots of barriers to participating. And one of the things that, one of the things that's troubling is, is it's kind of the, the it's, it's, it's also the pipeline, isn't it, for, for the sector. So, you know, I mean, you know, it's the the next phase that already the you know it's the start the postgraduate level really the start of most people's academic career in in kind of traditionally as it was, and there is a problem, isn't there, coming out? I mean, Jonathan, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder, I wonder whether universities need to be thinking about this in terms of you know their own their own talent pipeline. Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, as you say, it's very hard to um, you know, I don't think there's much in here that surprises us. Um, to a degree, I, I, the, you know, you could take a positive spin on this because the the gap um, has narrowed between um, so-called working class graduates and those from a more um, managerial um, background, um, which you know has got to be a, a reasonably um, good thing. But diversity within academia, on all dimensions of diversity, has got to be absolutely crucial um, for the um, sector um, going forward, and. Um, you know, and I think the question is, what do we mean by diversity in that context? And obviously, um, the, the the background of um, academics is critical. Um, but also, I would argue, um, have argued in other places, that um, we also need to think about bringing um, people into academia who have not traditionally followed an academic route, um, and to diversify views like that as well. Um, and you know, I suspect that's going to be an ever increasing trend as we go forward. Mm. I mean, how do you frame this in in your university, Marion? Do you, do you encourage people to keep progressing it despite all these these barriers? Oh, of course. Um, it's what we do, Mark. We encourage people to keep progressing and studying with us. Um, Yes. Um, and again, I think we need to be a bit mindful about uh, the sort of blanket uh, views of what postgraduate study looks like. Um, and I think the point here made around uh, postgraduate loans is uh, interesting. Uh, that um, it does cover some of the um, costs, but not all of them. And also, uh, 
I want to point out that it's uh, quite an inflexible um, scheme as well. Uh, and we know that, uh, yes, in principle, it's been uh, a force for good, allowing more people to enter postgraduate education. Uh, but actually, the way that it has been implemented has been perhaps rather simplistic at times um, and difficult to manage from a university's end. Uh, so I think more thought needs to be put into how we enable. Um, and I know that there is a sort of a, a longer term view of how we fund adults as well uh, to uh, carry on studying. Uh, that is going to look at the loan system. Um, and uh, I think it is uh, something really important that needs to be looked at in conjunction to everything else. Uh, but certainly universities are doing their best to encourage students to carry on studying with them or to, you know, not necessarily even with them, to carry on studying in general and to attract more students into postgraduate programs. Um, if I two comments on that, because I agree with Marion, and I think one of the – so clearly there's a financing bit here. Um, which does need to be addressed and become more flexible. And, and the sort of noises you get is that's sort of kind of on the agenda, I guess. Um, but it seems to me that universities also need to respond to a degree, and some are doing this very much. But, um, you know, when you look at sort of postgraduate education, lifelong learning, you need alternative models, um, which sort of bring in sort of micro credits um, and credit transfer systems um, quite quickly. And if we could start to... Um, you know, especially coming out of the pandemic where we've seen a shift into online education, there's real opportunities in there to start creating frameworks for both credit transfer, but also microcredits, which you can build up over, say, a 10-year period. Um, and I think there's quite a lot of innovation in that space that we could start to move into. Uh, the problem with the proposals on lifelong learning is they are explicitly dealing with level four to level six qualifications. So up to the level of your honours undergraduate degree, your standard undergraduate degree. Um, I've not seen any discussion in that debate about the idea of master study. Uh, the, the skills gap in the UK is not so much at level four and level five, but is actually at level seven and above. Um, increasingly, uh, postgraduate qualifications are something that's expected if you are starting, um, a professional, uh, career outside of academia as well as inside academia. There's a lot of interest in employers in having their employees come back and do, uh, postgraduate, uh, courses as well. Um, and it does feel like we're kind of missing the trick in the, uh, post 16 education and skills bill that we're not dealing at all with postgraduate study in there. Mm. Although, I mean, it, it speaks to a sector, a sector solution though, doesn't it? I mean, I, 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 the few people in the sector would probably want, um, probably want, probably want MPs to start legislating on, um, on how to organise postgrad courses? I would imagine not, but I imagine that we would like a more sensible and more sustainable solution on funding for postgraduates, because all that we've seen ha happen, unfortunately, with the loan coming in is uh, uh, prices have eventually uh, gone up, which just leaves us with the same problem of, of inequity. You still effectively need to have private resources in order to study at a master's level and it's pretty much essential to become an academic and that just feels like a waste of talent. And now it's time to catch up with Mike Ratcliffe and the hidden history of higher education. I think one of the things about university history is that um, we've always had it. We've always been interested in the, in the previous history and what's been going on. So my favourite little bit is the fight between Oxford and Cambridge to be the oldest. So they set off 
um, and we, the historians know that um, there's learning happening all over the place and slowly it coalesces into universities. But we know that Cambridge gets a big shot in the arm when um, there's a big riot in Oxford and sufficient students and um, lecturers go over to Cambridge and get it going. And it's 12.09 and it's fine uh, and off they go. Um, but that sets up a precedence that clearly if people left Oxford to go to Cambridge then Oxford must be older than Cambridge. But all of the kind of precedence sits on who's the oldest university. So they get to the uh, 17th century and this isn't enough. So you get this battle between these mad antiquarians as to who can be the oldest university. And they start producing books. So, I mean, it's great, referable stuff. Um, and they start making up quotes in order to guarantee that my university is older than your university. So Oxford kind of kicks off um, by saying that it was founded by King Alfred. Uh, so that puts it about 400 years older than it ought to be. But King Alfred founds it, and they find um, a quote uh, that a guy sticks into a translation of Asser's Life of Alfred, saying that St. Grimble came over to found the University of Oxford. And he just puts it in this edition of the book. Um, and it's completely bogus, but he just shoves it in. So that proves that Oxford is founded around 800. So that makes it you know, nice and old. Um, but then, in a next edition, they decide that that's not enough. So they find an even older quote, and that says that Grimble didn't found it, he reformed it. And that it had been founded 400 years earlier than that uh, by a bunch of um, Anglo-Saxon saints. Um, and they list all those saints out, and that's all very nice. And so they got a list of these people. Um, and so they're much older, so clearly they've, they managed to push that back. And why is that? Well, Cambridge has meantime got to found that they've been founded by someone called uh, Canterbury's. Uh, and um, he's been helped by King Arthur. So that pushes them earlier than King Alfred. So uh, they've been founded by King Arthur, and King Arthur's gone and found Athenian philosophers uh, to come over, um, and he's made his university, and they're, so they're much older uh, than Oxford. So clearly there's then a reaction. And so Oxford seems to trump the entire thing by coming up with this ruse, and it, it, it coalesces with the idea that England must be really old and ancient. It can't just be you know, an accident of um, successive waves of people invading it. So they were founded by the Trojans, who had escaped the siege of Troy, and they'd sailed around the Mediterranean, and they had arrived, and they'd set up the University of Oxford. Um, and to deal with the fact that there's a small issue of there not being any Greek temples in Oxford, to prove that it's actually you know founded 2,000 years before Christ, um, they add this extra embellishment that it was burned down by the Romans. So they're so old that they were burned down by the Romans. So this backwards and forwards in order to get precedence produces these books. So each of the universities has a published book that lists their history up to the conquest 1066. We know that the universities could not have been in existence until at least 100 years after. But these guys have produced these fabulous books saying we're so old that we've been going for so long. So, there's been a reorganisation of science in Whitehall this week. Jonathan, talk us through it. Well, to be honest, Mark, it's as clear as clotted cream, as from, from what I've read. Um, so, um, if you look at the sort of press release coming out in number 10, um, two things are going to happen. Um, there's going to be a new council to set up strategy on how science and technology will tackle the great societal challenges and transform lives, um, their language, not mine. Um, and again, in their language, plans set to build on the success of the best UK science throughout the pandemic and beyond to cement the UK's position as a science superpower. I think the um, particular um, sort of um, policy 
um, developments in all of this are the development of this new council um, for um, science and technology um, that will be headed by the chief scientific um, advisor, um, Patrick Valance. Um, but the, the sort of the clotted cream comment is that we already have a council for science and technology. Um, this one is um, a council for science and um, technology strategy. Um, so the, the sort of lines between those two at this stage, at least, um, are, are pretty unclear to me. Um, from a, so I, I think the consequence of these policies is pretty muted, if I'm honest about it. But I think there are some issues that universities um, probably need to um, think through um, to a degree. Um, the first is there's a complete absence of mention of the arts, humanities and social sciences in any of this. So it does seem yet again a quite a um, technocratic response um, coming from number 10. Um, and you can see the whole debate around the role of um, the arts and humanities and ARIA being repeated um, in this context. Um, I think it does yet again raise the long-term challenge to the where the research actually occurs for universities. Um, so, you know, we, we've got this commitment to increase R&D um, across the sector, but there's no commitment necessarily that that will occur in universities. Um, and related to that, I think you're going to see more directed research and more erosion of the Haldane principle, which um, is a phrase that we haven't heard for a number of years now. Um, and that may well make universities uncomfortable. So they're going to have to sort of square, if you like, those tensions. And, and by that, you mean the sort of reorientating things a bit further towards kind of ministerial Direction. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so less, less um, sort of uh, ideas coming from the academic sector, and more we want to create a vaccine, um, which in the context of a pandemic makes a lot of sense. But um, the success of that is going to direct a whole lot of other um, challenges, and 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 that will um, have quite knock-on effects within the the, the research system, um, and what research will be funded and what won't be funded. Um, and, and then I guess my, my final deeply cynical comment um, is it, it's amazing how chief scientific advisors can create new jobs um, because the previous mm -hmm. chief such chief scientific advisor, uh, Mark Wilpot, created UKRI um, and this current one has um, now created a new office for science and technology strategy. Um, and I guess, you know, related to that, what is the relationship between this new office um, and UKRI again um, gets back to my clotted cream. I guess the... The, the most cynical reading of it is that it's a kind of whitehall exercise in in moving things around, dismantling all the kind of institutions and architecture that that's going to come under scrutiny up in the in a big public inquiry about what happened in COVID. So in the same way with the they've done in in, in kind of NHS and um, Public Health England and and the rest, the big reorganisation. So the people, the institutions, are all going to not be standing when the you know when the criticism comes and no you know it's going to be it's going to it's going to be tough to to hold anyone responsible. Yeah, and yes, and um, James Wilson made that comment on Twitter um, when it all came out, and you know I'm quite sympathetic with that. Um, but to a degree, I don't think that, from a sort of um, science policy and science funding perspective, I don't think that matters um, too much. I think the real question is how does this impact on delivering um, that aspiration of getting to 2.4% GDP um, and science funding and post, you know, coming Brexit, post Brexit science funding. Um, and so will we see the increase in science funding? What is the nature of that increase? Will it be mission oriented um, or um, funded through the research councils? And will that research funding land in universities or in other places? Um, so I think those are the three fundamental issues rather than the reorganization of the deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, yeah. 
But we're talking about, I mean, DK, this is still the kind of influence of Dominic Cummings over science policy, right? So uh, backwards and a forwards, forwards and a backwards, he's the kind of geezer who likes to muscle in. Um, it was <laughs> true when the shaman said it in 1992, and it's equally true, as I say it today in 2021. Uh, science policy has become, after a fair time in the uh, backwaters of uh, departmental life, it's been brought back to the centre of government um, it, of course, there actually used to be an office for science and technology in the cabinet office back in the nineties, and things gradually moved out until we ended up with somebody like um, Amanda Soloway in charge of science policy. Um, um, an appointment as unlikely as it as it is puzzling, I think it's fair to say. So, um, science policy at the moment for whatever reason, is fashionable, is glamorous. Uh, there hasn't been any fundamental changes as to who actually decides science policy in terms of what research is actually performed. That's still researchers who bid to funding competitions that are assessed by peer review. Um, ARIA slightly quiz that pitch by adding in whatever metric they're going to use to uh, fund research. Um What's interesting to me is that it's, it's explicitly bringing in technology as well as science. I kind of, if I hear technology in um, government uh, speeches, I think of applied science and um, science that is quite a, lo a lot further down the funnel to commercial exploitation. So that seems to be coming in in the same way as um, Ukraine now in swallowing up Innovate UK has a role further down the pipeline as well. And even the text of the ARIA bill suggests is we're looking a lot closer to uh, productizing science, which is interesting. I finally note that um, uh, Patrick Valence has become um, Boris Johnson's um, technical advisor, which I believe was a role last held by uh, Jennifer Akuri. So, I mean, that's perhaps one to conjure with, M maybe not the kind of job he was hoping for. A new report out from the House of Commons Education Committee uh, talked about participation of white working class students this week and triggered a cavalcade of cultural stories in the media um, quite dispiritingly. But there's some really important points here. Marion, talk us through them. Uh, yes, uh, as you say, Mark, quite rightly. So this is the report by the House of Commons Education Committee um, that calls, among other things, for the Office of Students to set some targets for the participation of white working class students, um, notably not white working class boys, but all white working class students. Um, the report is called The Forgotten. Uh, and how white working class pupils have been let down and it covers um, achievement throughout uh, the school system all the way up to entering to higher education. And uh, important to note that uh, wo uh, working class here um, has been uh, measured through um, a free school meal um, participation, which is a, sort of a bit of a proxy. And the report acknowledges that this is not a perfect measure. Um, and uh, it touches on uh, things like uh, school-based initiatives and uh, um, encourages for the take-up of apprenticeships and degree apprenticeships, uh, various other recommendations. And it really is hard not to... It's hard not to be sarcastic about the report, sadly, because the, the topic at hand uh, is is important and we need to talk about it. And uh, we need to look at how we're leaving uh, white working class students behind. Um, sadly, the report, as you say, Mark, um, sort of like undermines its own credibility, unfortunately, right from its own introduction um, by um, saying that we need to stop talking about uh, white class, uh, about white privilege, sorry. 
and uh, how unhelpful this is. And uh, sure, it is unhelpful. Uh, sure, uh, as a you know white working class uh, person in this country, perhaps the last thing you feel is privileged. And telling you that you are uh, is not helpful in any way. Uh, but I do fail to see how that's the thing that's actually discouraging you from doing better at school and going to university. Uh, and I think we've got bigger problems here. Uh, and uh, the report's recommendations, uh, some of them are good things to look at. We absolutely should look at them and we absolutely need to make sure that we're addressing the issue. Uh, but, um, it, it, it makes itself less to be, be taken less seriously, let's say, uh, but how it's approaching, uh, the subject at hand. And, uh, I think I'll, uh, I'll try not to be any more negative about it. DK, what was, what was the, what was, f- f- find us something useful from it though. <laughs> Uh, I'll find something useful for it. It's like all policy is the problem of data definition. There is a marvellous article on Wonky by my esteemed colleague Matt Grogan called Who Exactly Is This White Working Class? And in it, he talks about the problems of saying, okay, everyone thinks they know what they mean when they say white working class rhetorically. They think they know what they're talking about. But in practice, actually coming up with a definition to see this group in the data is quite complex. Now, what the Education Committee have done They've used eligibility for free school meals, the usual free school meal marker, which I think is any instance of free school meals in the past six years. Um, and they've looked at an intersection of that and a white ethnicity. Now, um, I'm all in favor of intersectional uh, data measures. We can learn a lot about pockets of um, deprivation problems that we can see a, um, a a way to address among quite small groups. But here, the issue is that free school meals of the marker is such a powerful indicator of um, educational disadvantage, social disadvantage, employment disadvantage, any disadvantage you can name, basically, that the fact that these um, young people happen to be white is not necessarily the reason they're def- they're um, disadvantaged. The other issue that this, and this isn't quite a positive, unfortunately, Mark, sorry about this, is that it is, um, it is, as uh, the Conservatives used to say about the Liberal Party, it is the politics of envy. Um, if we're looking at this as a problem, it's not necessarily that anyone has ever denied that um, children from dat- um, disadvantaged backgrounds have had problems in accessing higher levels of education. That is the case, and there's a lot of work, a lot of really valuable and worthwhile work that is going on to do that. It is the perception that we need white working class people to be envious of working class people of other ethnicities because supposedly they're getting more help from the government. They're not. There's no such thing as uh, targeted by ethnicity. Um, it is a target in the Office for Students um, Access and Participation Plans, but it's not something that like people are sitting here and s- saying our campus is um, hideously um, white, which a lot of campuses in quite diverse places are. But the answer is let's expand, let's bring in more students rather than let's not um, bring in white students. So it's like an imagined kind of uh, Daily Express problem as opposed to um, an actual issue that we need to be spending time over. We do need to be 
getting better at providing access to higher level of education for all students. We need to be working with schools. We need to be working with local groups. That um, higher education already does a lot of this. It, we've seen some improvements over the, 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 the last decade or so. There is a lot more to do, but this kind of stuff, it's just not a helpful intervention. And that's the problem because it's so easily could have been. There is still a challenge there for universities, Jonathan. I mean, it's, it's a tricky area for people to talk about because it brings us back to race and um all sorts of all sorts of tricky things that the sector doesn't you know doesn't isn't naturally comfortable in uh kind of kind of speaking about kind of corp- corporately yeah so um i i sort of agree with both dk and mary and i you know at one level the, the this is a missed opportunity to have a grown up debate um and the fact that um somebody decided to sort of locate it in the culture walls is just deeply unhelpful because there's a serious and substantive issue um, that you know universities need to engage with and, and wider society needs to engage with um, and it's actually an issue that um, you know has profound consequences for social cohesion going forward because you know we, we, we know from voting data and education attainment and, and what have you that th- these divides run run deep so um, you know I, I just feel a bit like DK just said that this report is a, a massive missed opportunity not necessarily in the issues that it's raising but in its framing as a cultural issues um i do think universities need to um engage um in a different way um around these issues of so-called white privilege and race and access i think they on you know i think there's some brilliant practice out there so so it's very hard to speak in generalizations but i i do worry um, that there's a lot of what I, 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 in my book, I call performative action. Um, so, you know, symbolism, um, if you like, um, where we're doing stuff because we want to sort of um, show that we're doing stuff rather than doing stuff that um, actually is going to make a difference to the outcomes of individuals. Um, and, you know, we're, we're doing those performances partly in reaction to these cultural wars. Um, so it's a very, it's, it's a very sort of um, negative um, circle that we need to break. Um, but I think it's, it's all too easy to walk away from the issues. Um, and we need to, um, you know, acknowledge um, that there are, you know, diverse segments of um, society that don't have access to higher education. Um, and how we respond to that is probably very um, varied and very nuanced. Um, but I, I would be nervous if we rejected this report because it's caught up in the cultural wars and, and somewhat disappointed um, that the, um, the, the, the writers of the report decided that, that was the best way to frame it because I think we're going to lose the opportunity to have a sensible discussion about these issues. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks to Jonathan, Marin, TK and everyone at Team Wonky that makes the show happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay wonky. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.